It is uh, March 16th, 2014, and uh, our message this morning is the Christian alphabet. Amen? ABCs, starting with the basics. So I would like to acknowledge at the beginning of the service that we have had a tough couple months, and there are miracles all around us. Baby Riley was not going to live the first night, and here she is almost a month later. (laughs) Baby Riley is just eating up a storm. Baby Riley was never going to come home, and it's very possible soon she'll be back at the Piro and McLean household. Steve and Dee Dee were basically told to pack it up. This was over. That if they didn't rely upon medicine, that there was no hope for them. And they are still here and doing strong and growing in the Lord every day. We serve a God who does the impossible. We serve a God that laughs in the face of the enemy. I want to encourage you, saints, the devil is no match for our God. Don't be deceived. It's not even close. He's got a propaganda campaign, and he appears big because he talks big. But when it comes down to it, a drop of the presence of God causes all the enemies to run. While we talk about the Christian alphabet, I want to talk to you about the lay of the land for just a moment. I don't want to spend too much time on it because you live in it. You know exactly what it's like. What we have at this time are called millennials, echo boomers, the MTV generation, whatever we call them, they're the largest generation that the world has ever known. This generation right now is larger than any other in history. When we think about our young people, people that were born, say, from the 90s forward, It's a sobering thing to realize they're going to run the planet Earth. The people who are in power now are largely the baby boomer generation. They were born 10 years following the GI's return from World War II. It's said that that generation had about 35% Bible-believing, evangelical, born-again Christians. Today, most of those people are from 61 to 71 years old. Under their leadership, as much as I love that generation and they changed the world, under their leadership, we've seen the most rapid moral decline in American history. We've seen legalized abortion. We've seen the introduction of Eastern religions. We've seen a sexual revolution, monumental drug experimentation, and the pulling down of the Ten Commandments from our buildings. Prayer from schools has been removed, and under God has been taken out of the Pledge of Allegiance or skipped over without a pause. Now, here's the frightening part. Only 4% of teenagers today are predicted to make it into their adult years as Bible-believing, born-again Christians based on our present rates of evangelism in the United States. If 35% of the baby boomers gave us the most rapid moral decline in American history, what will today's four percenters give us when they rule the world? 
Aside from this vast percentage deficit, consider that they're starting off in a far worse world than our parents ever did. Think about the following. When we look at TV, music, the internet, and media, this generation spends 16 to 17 hours of television each week on average with 14,000 sexual scenes and references each year just in the TV. That's more than 38 references every day to immoral sexual activity. By the time the average child graduates from high school, he or she will have watched 19,000 hours of television and seen more than 200,000 sexual acts and 1 million acts of violence. That's distinctly different than how the baby boomers grew up. More than 25% of teen-targeted radio segments contain sexual content. 42% of the top-selling CDs contain sexual content. This generation spends three hours or more a day online, and they are the first in human history to grow up with point-and-click pornography. Access, saturation, secondhand sex, and secondhand violence have so inundated our culture that it has changed what is considered normal. Since mainstream would not adjust to the radical agenda of today's sexual immorality, they simply talked about it loud enough, they infused society with it so much that it's moved mainstream. What's considered normal now is different than what was considered normal 30 years ago. And it's so bad that you could say it's dark outside. <coughs> Exodus 10, 22 through 23 is an enlightening verse. So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. How much darkness covered Egypt? Come on, how much darkness? If it's total darkness, then there is no light, right? No one could see anyone else or leave his place for three days. And yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. It said that there was total darkness, and when you looked out, there was darkness everywhere. But wherever the people of God lived... There was light. As dark as this moral climate is, there was light in here this morning. As dark as this moral climate is, there is light everywhere. The people of God are raising up holy hands in worship and prayer. I have brothers in Baton Rouge, Louisiana this morning, and there is light there. I have brothers in Chicago, and there is light there. Brothers in India, and there is light there. You can look at our nation's capital and say how dark it is. But Zeke Lamb and Zach Lamb are there and there is light there. I'm not ready to give up or throw in the towel. When slapped in the face, some cower in a corner and others rise up and find out there is strength in them that they didn't know was there. I don't believe that the victorious church of Jesus Christ is going to lose. It's simply a time to return to fundamentals. You know, one thing that mixed martial arts has taught us in these last 10 years is as pretty as those roundhouse kicks are, 
As wonderful as the kung fu theater that we grew up on, Matthew, was, none of it works. It doesn't work at all. It's pretty. It's flashy. But when men's lives are on the line, they return to the basics. Church, our spiritual life is on the line. It's time to go back to the basics. Hence, the Christian ABCs, the Christian alphabet. When we need to return in intense warfare, we have to return to the things that make us strong. For me, that starts with an understanding of the culture that God gave us in the Jewish people. Turn with me to Corinthians, the first chapter and the 22nd verse. Say there when you are there. We're going back to the basics for a few minutes. Jews demand a miraculous sign and Greeks Look for wisdom. The man who wrote this would know. He was an expert in Greek philosophy and he demonstrates it as he writes many portions of the New Testament. He was a Jew of Jews, circumcised on the eighth day and born to the tribe of Benjamin. In assessing the two major divisions in his world, Hebrew and Greek, he made an astonishing statement. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. Our churches have looked for logical programs, logical solutions. We look for A plus B plus C equals D and we think linearly. But in the Jewish world, you simply look to see what someone did. We ask for creeds. We want to know what someone believes. The Jew was taught to look to see what they do. One of the basic things that the church can return to when we say ABC is an action-based Christian life. One that demonstrates in our deed what we profess in our creed. That we will stop holding up Christian platitudes and start holding up Christian deeds. The Jewish nation understood this. Look at how Jesus spoke to them in John 10 and verse 37. Somebody say, there when you were there. Do not believe me unless I do what my father does. Who said that, friends? Who said it? Did Jesus ever lie? If Jesus said, do not believe me unless I do what my father does, what right do we have to come and tell people, believe us, even though we do not do what the father does? If Jesus Christ's method of evangelism was based on what he did, then how can our evangelistic efforts be based simply on what we say we believe? Jesus stood to the religious aristocracy of his day and he held up one thing, what his faith, his trust produced in the way of action. Today, that's almost so far off the theological mainstream that people will say you're adding to the cross and preaching a works-based salvation. I'm not interested in arguing with stupidity. If what you say you believe is not showing up in your daily action, let us reason together. You don't really believe it because when you believe something, it shows up in your actions. You could see in Jesus' deeds that he loved the Father. He said, the prince of this world is coming for me but he has no hold on me. The world will learn that I love the Father. Church, it's time for the Lord to to show through us 
that we love the Father in our deeds. Can somebody say amen? Amen. Let us go to the second chapter of James. Start in the 14th verse with me. Say there when you were there. When things get as tense as they've been lately, I go back to the messages that shaped my heart and sent me into ministry. I go back to the foundational elements that made the Stevens and the P. Rose do what we do. The first Christian bumper sticker that I ever put on a car in Texas came from these passages. It's what I wanted the world to know. In James 2, starting in 14, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? That's a question. And the answer in the scripture is, of course not. Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. During this kind of darkness, we need to be thankful, and there's a reason for it. I was standing in Sri Lanka, and I was taught there that the Buddhists of Sri Lanka are taught that emotions show weakness. So they don't smile. They don't frown. It's like a nation on Prozac. It's very much like some of our nation. Flat to the world. And the Christians there struggle a little bit. They say, you know what? It's hard to teach former Buddhists to worship because we're so free with our love and we express it and all. And they were taught that was wrong. I said, no, friends. God has created for you a glorious opportunity. If they all refuse to show emotion, all you have to do is smile and it becomes a statement of faith. All you have to do is show love and it becomes a statement of faith. A long time before you ever mention Jesus, you get to show Jesus and you will stand out like a light bulb in a dark room. You wonder why we're going through the things that we're going through in our nation? God has dimmed the lights so that you can shine like the brightness of of the heavens. Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky and it became dark in Egypt. But it was light where the people of God stood. So it's becoming dark in our land. This is time for us to shine. This will be the church's finest hour. If men and women of faith will stand up and live what they believe, this will be our finest hour. In the 1800s, the call went out to the missionaries and they went and they forged roads. They cut down trees, they built houses and they stood against demonic powers. They spread the gospel across the continent of Africa. They reached into Asia. They conquered parts of Indonesia. They faced headhunter cannibals. They faced malaria. They faced sickness of every kind because they rose to the challenge that opposed their faith. The floodwaters are rising, saints. They're rising all around us. And it's time for us to stand up in our faith. It's time for us to live it out loud and outside the walls of the church. You want to know what the world is waiting for? They're waiting for the genuine Christian. They're waiting for the sincere faith. They're waiting 
for the faith that can be tested under trial and yet persevere. The fake smiles, the fat bank accounts, and the pretty suits have left the world feeling empty. It's like eating Twinkies and Ho-Ho cakes instead of a nutritious meal. It tastes good for a minute, but it just leaves you kind of yucky inside. We need to stop the spiritual junk food and start with the basic tenets of the faith. What we believe is not nearly as important as what we do, unless what we believe is producing what we do. Amen? Turn with me to John 5. Let's look at a familiar story and what I hope is a way that changes it for you like it did me. In John 5, starting in verse 1, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethsaida, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. I'm now 39 years old. I have been head over heels in love with Jesus for 21 years. 38 years in a condition is a long time, isn't it? When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in his condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Was Jesus being insensitive? The longer you've been in a condition, the longer, or the longer you've been there, the more likely you are to have accepted it. You might think that the tide of filth and pollution that is flooding us has to be here to stay because you've grown up in it, because it's all you've ever seen. You may have simply accepted it as the norm. But Jesus asked us a question. Do you want to get well? See, it's a fair question. You can ask somebody if they want to get well, and they say yes, but they'll not be willing to do what you tell them to do. Does anybody want gangrene? Of course not. In the Civil War, are you willing to cut off your leg to avoid gangrene? Maybe yes, maybe no. It's a reasonable question. Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me in the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. This is a basic tenet of the faith. You cannot save yourself. No amount of moral reformation inside of you will save you. Your very best efforts to tame the flesh will always come up short. And if you measure yourself by everyone else, there will always be someone ahead of you. Salvation cannot be found in man's attempt to save himself. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. When Jesus said, get up, the man has a choice in that moment. So they asked him, I'm sorry, at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. This is a truth in salvation that we have left out and read over. We understand that Jesus heals. We understand that he saves. We understand that it happens in an instant. 
When the man was cured, it was not over, though. Jesus immediately gave him a job. What was his job? Pick up your mat and walk. You've been given a burden to carry. You've been given a task to perform. Now that you're cured, I expect of you to do something. Trust me for your healing. Stand to your feet. And now let me put you to work. The second he was saved, he had something to carry and somewhere to go. We can't get saved and have nothing to carry and nowhere to go. Our job cannot be to sit and soak, to listen to a sage on a stage and be a perpetual student. The moment that we're born again, he puts something in our hands and sends us somewhere. We're a teaching church. I'm not telling you that you're not taught. I'm not telling you that there's not a deposit to put inside you. I'm simply saying passive Christianity dies. If you have no function, if you have no purpose, if you have no heavenly task, then the grapes get overripe on the vine and they turn into raisins. Did God call you to be a raisin? Anybody in here want to be a raisin? How about a prune or a date? We're supposed to receive the nourishment of the Holy Ghost and then become wine in his cup. Our job, church, is to find out what our mat looks like and what direction we're supposed to walk. That's our job. And as we do this, the world will take note. I'm going to suggest to you a couple ways that that might look. But the first thing that we have to know is our actions prove or deny the faith that we say that we profess. The second thing is everyone who is born again has something to carry and somewhere to go. Come on. If you are leaven, what part of the dough do you affect first? Whatever's closest to you, right? You may not have to go far. Everybody wants to go on a missions trip, and I love it. I've been in a bunch of nations. But it is kind of absurd to cross seven oceans to get to another place and you have not walked seven feet to your neighbor's house. When we are born again, we are given something to carry and given somewhere to go. Begin praying and God will show you what you carry and he will show you where to go. Somebody say amen. Amen. I'm going to carry the message. Say it. And I'm going to go where he says to go. We're already starting to create movement just with that thought. That's entirely different than saying, sit down, show me what I must believe, where I must pay and where I must sit. I'm not interested in your money, church, and neither is Jesus. The tithing and the offerings and those things are simply the product of a heart that trusts God. But you can't bribe him. You can't pay somebody else to take your seat. You were born with a unique task, a unique function. The way my pastor used to say it was every hand was fitted to a sickle that was uniquely theirs. And it had a place in the harvest field. We need to find out what our function is. And we have to engage in it. We have to. The world needs us. Are you satisfied with a drop from 35% to 4% on your watch? I'm not satisfied. I don't want to leave the potential pool of husbands for Abby to be 96% heathen. I don't want that. I'm hoping somewhere out there there's a life being changed for the glory of God that she'll unite with and change the world. Come on, church. We have a duty, an obligation 
to prosperity. Our, our future people. In Matthew 21, we're not going to read it. I just want to remind you. In Matthew 21, verses 28 through 32, we had something. We had two sons. The first one spoke wrongly, but acted rightly. The father tells him to do something, and he says, no, I won't do it. But later he goes and does it. The second son speaks rightly. Oh, yes, father, I will do it. But then he didn't go and do it. Come on, church, which, which son are we? I would rather, given the choice, be the one that doesn't know how to perfectly express a creed, but does the deeds the father has laid out for him. I think all too often we have learned to profess with our mouth things that our feet never carry out. I was talking with Brother Michael while I was in India, and he found a quote for me, and I believe he preached on it. He said, I prayed for 20-some-odd years, and it wasn't until I used my feet that I found success. We're trying to move mountains sometimes that the Lord has told us to attack and climb. I want to encourage you to find a way to be active in your faith, to share the gospel in your daily life, to avoid the temptation to let Wednesdays and Sundays become your Christian service. Wednesdays and Sundays are the days that you get recharged for the other five days of week. That's that's their purpose. This is the huddle. This is not the playing field. In Matthew 25, again, We're not going to turn there. I'm trying to remind you of how deeply ingrained actions were in the early church. In Matthew 25, we had the parable of the talents. Do you remember that men that did not increase what they were given were considered wicked and lazy? But those that increased what they were giving were considered faithful. It went from Matthew 25 to Matthew 26 where we had a separation of the sheep and goats. In Matthew 26, 40, we found men who did do what the Lord had told them to do. And when they did it for the least of these, it was done for Jesus. In Matthew 26, 45, we found men who did not do what the Lord told them to do. If this is not biblical, saints, then we need new Bibles because the Bible that I have clearly separates a sheep and a goat based on what we do and do not do. If you have a genuine abiding love for the Lord, say so. If you have a genuine and abiding love for the Lord, can you say so this morning? See, if we can learn to speak up in the house of God, maybe we will not be ashamed to speak up in the world. If we can learn to stand up together, maybe we will develop a habit that teaches us to stand up when alone. There is going to be a separation of those that look like they're a part of the flock, and it will be based on what their faith produced or did not produce. A real faith produces actions. Romans 1.5 teaches us that there's a relationship between obedience and faith. Through him and for his name's sake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes or springs from faith. When you have faith, it shows up in your actions. All that the Holy Ghost 
would breathe on us now. That we would begin to think of actions that are prompted by our trust in the Lord. I love that you are generous givers, and you are. Somebody was talking about a large church here recently, and they seemed to have lost about $600,000 from a service. They were giving me a hard time. They were saying, oh, what would you do with all that money? I said, I wouldn't want it. What do you mean you wouldn't want it? I said, well, that was produced by about 40,000 people. Do the math. That's $15 a head. Our little church lives sacrificially. If there was $15 a head, we'd have starved to death a long time ago. I will take the righteous remnant that show their faith by what they do over the multitude of lip-professing Christians. I'm not picking on any church. I'm simply saying it is the world we live in, and we need to be careful to be in the world but not of the world. It's time to shine our light. Let's look at some ways to do it. Will you turn with me to 1 Kings? While you're turning to 1 Kings, Susan, could you put 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 2 on the screen? Church, turn to 1 Kings 17. What you see on the screen now is a profound truth. It changed my life. There is no doubt that when Jesus spoke to me, I felt entrusted with something. There is no doubt that during the years where men were pouring into my life and discipling me, I was being entrusted with something. What I did not know was happening is those difficult times if I wanted to preach and didn't have the opportunity, if I preached and did my best, but it was corrected because all disciples are corrected, I didn't realize what was happening. When I started here and we saw no signs of success, can you imagine? I lost 70 pounds from stress and exercise. Can you tell I'm happy? <laughs> Lost 70 pounds from stress and exercise. You know why? Nothing was happening. God sent me here, but nothing was happening. I had no idea what God was developing in us. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. If you want to catch God's heart, perseverance is required. If you want to catch God's heart, persistent obedience is required. God will set the playing field so that only those who want him with all of their hearts have what it takes to make it. They never had it in and of themselves. He deposits it. His eyes range the earth looking for those whose hearts are fully committed to him that he may strengthen them. His eyes do not range the earth looking for those who give about 10% of their heart to him so that he can strengthen them. You'll never find that scripture. It's not there. Are you sold out for him? Is he entrusting you with something? And if he is, what's your obligation? We're in the days of proving faithful, saints. Nobody's been made a king yet. We're children of the resurrection, but the resurrection hasn't come yet. We're still burying the old nature and being anointed of the living God, walking this out in front of a skeptical world. You know, the early church didn't have a vote They didn't have media. They didn't have a Christian coalition and there weren't churches on every corner. But their tenacious faith changed 
the planet so that we number our days from Jesus' birth. What could we do if we believe with all of our heart that our statement of faith was our daily activities? Come on, church. Our statement of faith is our daily activities. Are you in 1 Kings? I love 1 Kings. I preach out of 1 Kings 17 often. In this morning, feeling embattled before prayer, yesterday, feeling embattled, I thought, Lord, what is it that we need? Because our little church certainly needs a touch from heaven. And he told me to go back to the fundamentals. Go back to the things that we did at first. Go back to the beginning and do what you did at first. It was very similar to what Jesus told the church of Ephesus. You know what we fell in love with in the beginning? Deeds-based evangelism. We loved an action-based Christianity. We loved to stand up and say, watch what I do and see if I love the Lord. Is there anybody out there that wants to show the world that you love the Lord? Come on, do you love the Lord? Watch 1 Kings 17. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tish. (laughs) Thanks for that clarification. Not sure who wrote 1 Kings. We could debate about that. But apparently we're supposed to know that Tishbites are from Tish. In Gilead said to Abraham, Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will neither be dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Elijah caused a drought and a famine. What word do you want to preach? I mean, do you know that Jonah prophesied when God said there would be victory, it's recorded in Chronicles. But he refused to go prophesy to Nineveh. He got on a boat headed the wrong way. How many men are anointed of God to speak the word of God, but we only speak the words that we like to speak? Are you disappointed when you witness to somebody and they treat you badly? We all are. Are you tempted to think that you fail? Come on, you can answer me. Are you tempted to think you fail when you feel anointed and you speak the word of God and somebody sneers at you? Do you feel like you failed? At least you committed them to a position. When they go home at night, the Holy Ghost will replay that in their mind. You know, Elijah's preaching to Ahab, but God had already determined to destroy Ahab. So why is he preaching to him? Because it makes Ahab more and more guilty. I'm not here preaching predestination or some kind of hyper-Calvinism. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying when you share, the obedience is what is rewarded, not the result. It is not your job to determine the result, and it's not a sales pitch to close. It's your job to share what the Lord tells you to share. You know what their job is? To react rightly. Do you remember that Jesus stood before Pilate? Does anybody remember that? Raise your hand if you remember it. And Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? Do you remember Jesus' response? He says, everyone who's on the side of truth listens to me. That's not really an explanation, is it? Why didn't Jesus beg Pilate 
to follow him. Pilate had a role to play, and it was up to Pilate. His own wife warned him, didn't she? She warned him. He stood in front of Jesus. Pilate was committed to his position, and he will stand before God for that. Your witness brings salvation, and it can bring judgment. This is why it's important that we follow the leading of the Spirit and we're obedient. Do you think Hitler ever heard the gospel? Did they just not present it well? Is, is the problem that they didn't know the right order of scriptures to present it in? Maybe they got the Roman road of salvation out of order. Is that the problem? It's revealing of Hitler's heart. And when he stood before the living God, those words were replayed and they were accountable. Do you remember that Jesus said that the nation of Israel would be judged by the words of Moses, speaking to their leaders because that's what they were clinging to? Moses' words would stand as a dividing line for them. If they had understood Moses' words, they'd understand Jesus' words. Elijah the Tishbite from Tish preached to Ahab. He told him that there would be a famine coming. Pick up with me in the seventh verse. In the seventh verse, we have skipped over Elijah being fed by ravens during a famine that he caused. God sent him to a brook, and he began to drink from the brook. And in the seventh verse, we find out Sometime later, that brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. God sent him to a place where the brook was going to dry up. What's wrong with God? Could he not see that the brook was going to dry up? Is God just mean? Why would God cause the man to proclaim a famine and a drought and then say, I'm going to provide for you, the ravens will feed you, and the brook by the Kiriath Ravine, will feed you, and then suddenly the brook dry up. What's wrong with God? What do you think Elijah thought? What would you think? So, Nolan, we say, if you go to Sugar Land, you'll be provided for. You're going to meet a man, and that man will offer you a job, and it'll be the best job you ever had. And Nolan says, oh, praise God, glory. He goes in the interviews and says, God sent me here. They hire him. He does his job, he does it well, and about 14 days later, they say, you know what, we thank you, you did your job so well, you're no longer needed. How would you feel, Nolan? How would you feel, Nolan? How? Terrible. Why? I'd feel terrible too, I'm with Nolan. Why? Because we think that when we do what God says, things are to go well for us. Why do you think God allowed the brook to dry up? Elijah's source was never a book or a raven. What was Elijah's source? The living God. Friends, one spring may dry up, one raven may fail to carry your food, but the living God is faithful always. And we cannot do what we've always done and expect that God will continue it in the same way forever. The church of the living God does not have square wheels. This is what's wrong with writing down our cultural approach to spreading the gospel in the year 1600 and trying to practice it in the year 2014. God allows one method to dry up. He allows something to dry up so that you must return to him for the source. Now, when Jesus taught us to pray, he said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What was the next line? Thy will be done on as it is in heaven. The next line. Give us this, 
Give us this week. Give us this month. I know, give us this century, the bread that we will need. How often were you supposed to go back to him? Sometimes we've been at the same old brook too long. It dried up a long time ago, but we can't move on because we're still celebrating yesterday's victory, not knowing about today's need. Are you still telling stories that are 20 years old because you don't have any today? See, the saints of the living God, we're being made new. Did you get washed over in worship today? Did you get empowered in worship today? There's a reason for it. Why do you put gas in your tank? Because you want to go somewhere. You want to do something. It's not a monument to the fact that the car once ran. It's empowerment for the next week. Are you hearing me? The brook dried up so that Elijah wouldn't camp there. Was he out of the will of God while he was there? No, not at all. But now it's simply time to go. The birds sang a song in the 60s. Turn, turn, turn. They were quoting Ecclesiastes, and they said to everything there is a season. The seasons are changing, friends, and we must find new ways to preach the truth of the gospel in our actions. I'm one that has resisted every single technological advancement. I don't like Facebook. I don't know what a tweet or a Twitter is. I hated MySpace. It took me forever to come around to email. And yet today, we use Facebook, we use a website, we use our email. There are people that listen to us in Australia that we're in communication with weekly. We cannot resist what is going on around us. We need to figure out where today's brook is and find the right actions in it. You know... I used to run into people that were King James only, and it frustrated me to death. My pastor used an NIV. I used an NIV, and as far as I was concerned, an NIV was the Bible. Not that something else wasn't, but that it was the Bible. Every time the Lord had spoken to me, he had spoken out of the NIV. But as time has gone on, now there's a 2011 NIV that I don't like. I don't like it at all. And I find myself saying the 1984 NIV, and it reminds me of men that said 1611 King James. We have a choice to make, saints. Whether we're going to drink from the old brook all of our lives and stay trapped in stone with what God did 20 years ago, or whether we're going to ask what we're supposed to be doing right now today that is fresh bread. That's not an endorsement of the new NIV. It's simply a principle. I love New American Standard. I think the ESV is pretty good, too. Love the complete Jewish Bible. I think it's great to read from a bunch of them. I don't understand King James when I read it. You have to interpret it for me. We read some passages the other night at the table that I don't think you could read to a modern audience, right, Nick? I don't think it would work. But we have an obligation, church, to find out what deeds today we're supposed to do. I read about Charles Finney all of the time. I read about the great men of faith that went before us, but you know what? They were not imitating men from 300 years before them. They were asking what God wanted them to do in their day, at their time, now. Somebody say amen. Amen. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. 
God had caused a drought, saints. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. Now, if you had to pick a place to go eat, would you be looking for a widow in a foreign town to feed you? How comfortable is that? That's probably only slightly less comfortable than being fed by an unclean bird, a raven. I bet that being fed by ravens and being watered from a brook prepared him for what he was going to go do next. Come on now. Have you ever had a job you disliked? Tell the truth. How could it be quiet with that kind of question? Have you ever had a job you disliked? Can you look back now and see anything in that job that helped you have the job you have now? Oh, man, I had some that I hated. I whined and moaned. I was, I was a very poor Christian about that. I mean, most of my prayer life was about the injustice of my situation. And I needed every one of those situations. They come up daily now. Learning to deal with the men that I dealt with then teaches me to deal with the people I deal with now. Learning those skills then, I put into practice every day now. And you've never seen a more diverse assortment of ridiculous jobs in all of your life than I held. Today's watered brook that dries up might be preparing you for the next task. If you're going to have a season of change, a season of redirection in your life, it's going to involve doing something different. Amen? Amen. So in this case, he's got to go to Zarephath of Sidon. That's got to be difficult. You might even say he went to Zarephath in verse 10. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called and please bring me a piece of bread. You want to talk about audacious faith? You go find a widow you've never met in a Gentile region. And the first thing that you ask her for, not knowing anything about her circumstances, is that she feed you. And after you've already made one request and she's walking off, you say, oh, and, and by the way, why don't you just bring me some bread too with that jar of water? Is there anybody here that thinks that that's bold? Bold like Dennis Pence going up to that multimillionaire that owned the, the hotel and tell him God was going to give him the hotel? It's bold. Do you think he trusted his God? What do you think the widow thought? See, we read these in their stories, but you don't put yourself in the widow's position. What do you think she thought? I bet she thought he was crazy. But she was probably intrigued enough that somebody would act like that, that she at least considered it, huh? This defies all reason. They were in the middle of a drought that the Lord had used Elijah to proclaim, and now he's supposed to ask a foreigner who isn't even in God's nation to provide for him. I'm glad he didn't spend all of his time questioning God's reason. Instead, he trusted God's wisdom. Look at verse 12. As surely as the Lord, your God lives, she replies. Did you catch that? As surely as the Lord, whose God? Your God God lives, she replied. I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little 
oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. There are a lot of ways you could respond to that. Maybe Elijah had some money with him. Oh, I'm so sorry, sweetheart. Here's some money. It'll make things better. Come on, you're Americans. You've never been tempted to try to fix a problem with money? Do you think that every beggar that you pass really needs your change? Is that what you think they need? God has given you the immortal gospel, and you're pretty sure that what they need is your change? You ever read Jim Simbla's book, Fresh Fire? Fresh wind, fresh fire? His associate pastor today once walked in his church at Thanksgiving, homeless, drug addicted. Jim reached in his pocket to take out money and hand it to the man. And the Holy Ghost said, how dare you insult my spirit by trying to use money for what I can only accomplish. You go through about four more chapters before he tells you that that man has been helping him pastor the church all of these years. He got filled with the Holy Ghost that day. Do you think today he'd rather have gotten $10 or gotten the Holy Ghost? It's time for an adjustment in our thinking. Elijah probably had difficulty in his thoughts. I don't know what he believed at that moment, but I surely know what he did. He saw it as a divine appointment. I've now run into a woman with no hope, and guess what Elijah had? Hope. Elijah said to her, do not be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. I'm so glad the sentence doesn't end there. What did she say she was going to do? Go home and die. (laughs) But it, it doesn't end there. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. I want you to notice the presentation of the gospel. The living God will provide for you. And although you have the sentence of death in your heart, there is life yet. But what has to happen first? You have to put the Lord's needs before yours. First. Relax, I'm not going to pass a plate. It's not why we're preaching. The gospel requires an action that shows faith. It requires the man by the pool to say he wants to get well and try to stand. It requires when you're standing outside the gate called beautiful and Peter and John are there for the man to try to stand. He was helped to his feet, but he tried to stand. And then God made his legs strong. It requires an action. The brother preached on entitlements the other night. You are not entitled to a faith that is actionless and lays claim to all of heaven and you don't have to do anything. The gospel requires you to do something. That's how you show your faith. So she had to go home and do something. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and for her family. You mean that the living God came through on his promise. How hard do you think it was for her to give away her last little bit? About as hard as it should have been for you to give away your life when you began to follow Jesus. I had a friend named Jason Setzer, and 
Jason, when he got born again, had a giant pot stash. Now, today in Colorado, apparently that's not wrong anymore, but in God's kingdom, it's still wrong wherever you live. He had a giant pot stash. And so the Lord began to deal with him and he got rid of all of his pot stash except this one special baggie because he'd gotten it from a long ways away and it was really expensive and it was worth something. He was sincerely in love with the Lord. He was going to worship meetings. He was baptized in God's Holy Ghost and goes back home and he's praying. And the Lord says, you know very well that you've hidden something. He's like, no, Lord, not that. I mean, you know, I'm not going to smoke it. It's just that he'd treasured it. He said the hardest thing in his life was to flush that down the toilet. He said, couldn't I at least give it to somebody that would appreciate it? You know, this is good stuff, Lord. Now, it's silly because a pot stash may not be your thing, but it's funny how we squirrel away and pigeonhole little idols in our lives. We say, Lord, I'll do anything for you. Just don't touch that. I promise whatever it is you don't want the Lord to touch is what he wants. I promise. Because he doesn't need anything from you. What he wants is all of you. We serve a God who didn't care about the 95% of the stash he threw away. He cared about the 5% he kept for himself. Oh, church, I don't know if you can hear this. You'd be rewarded everywhere you go in the eyes of men if you give more money. But what if God is not nearly as interested in what you're giving away as what you're keeping for yourself? What if a man is not judged by the amount of money he gave away, but by what he kept for himself? The gospel required this woman to lay everything that she had at the feet of the Lord. Everything. Do you think it requires less of you? It doesn't. This is a saving faith. It showed up in her actions. It showed up in the actions of a little tax collector named Zacchaeus too. It shows up in the actions of the faithful all over the world to this day. My friends in India that want to hold the crusade, sell their cars and their jewelry and everything they have to hold the crusade. It requires all they have every time. Perhaps living in an environment where it only requires a small part of what we have has damaged our view of the gospel. Look at verse 15. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word the Lord had spoken by Elijah. So do you want to know, did she get saved or not? Sometimes God provides for us in a drought, but even that's not enough to persuade the lost. But thanks to God that he is not willing that any should perish because he will keep working with us to cause us to come to him. Wouldn't you think she got saved when she saw miraculous provision? Isn't that what we're being told by the prosperity bunch? That if God multiplies finances, everybody will see it. And when they see it, oh, wow, they'll glorify God. Look at verse 17. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Am I the only one who finds that an odd statement? What had Elijah done that would remind her of her sin? He simply lived a life full of faith in her presence. 
You know, it's an amazing thing. We think that to witness, we have to speak so many words. If you simply live in a righteous fashion, I promise it's having an effect on the people around you, whether you know it or not. A woman named Rebecca Brimmer, who's a friend of mine in Israel, she's the president of Bridges for Peace. Actually, she's the the chief executive officer now. She said, Eric, witness everywhere you go. And when it becomes necessary, use words. (laughs) That's an amazing principle that your actions speak louder than words. These are platitudes that we know and we're familiar with, but we're not sure how to put them into practice. What would have happened if there was no drought? We wouldn't have been at the Kiriath Ravine. The women would have had all the food she needed and there wouldn't be a problem. What would happen if her son was not ill? Church, we were born for these kind of times. See, it's in these kind of times that people will see what you do and they can draw a distinction. If it's not dark in Egypt, you don't notice that it's light in Goshen. But when it's dark in Egypt, the light in Goshen shows a dramatic distinction. We need to thank God for the trials that are coming upon us. The people of God always suffer attack from the lost. Notice that she mentions that his presence was a reminder of her sin. Our presence in the lives of the lost is used by God to remind them of their sin. Finally, she laid the worst insult on him. She accused him of killing her son, even though it was his faithful actions and preaching to her that was sustaining her and her son. Your obedience to God and kindness to the lost often looks unappreciated. But hang in there. Do you feel like sometimes you're trying to work for the Lord, but you get slapped in the face? A good friend of mine said, it's like I'm wearing a cape, but I keep tripping on it and I can never fly. This is where many would have just gotten offended and left. But God requires us to love without limit and endure without retaliating. He requires of us godly actions in these kind of situations. See, Elijah hasn't done a thing wrong, but she's accused him of two terrible things. He's condemning her and he killed her son. Have you ever considered that sometimes you might just be being insulted for the express purpose of finding out if you're real? Hmm? You know, if we all pull out of this parking lot and drive to the stop sign and somebody cuts you off, and you act like every other person, what will they say? Yeah, they just left church. Maybe that's why people say churches are full of hypocrites. Maybe it's time for the hypocrites to repent, you know? See, if we act like everybody else, where is the witness of God in that? Look at Elijah's response. Verse 19, give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. When people hurt you, when they insult you, you push them away or pull them closer. See, the natural reaction when somebody hurts you, Brenton, is to what? Stand up, Brenton. Punch him. That's good. Stand up. Brenton, if I push you, what do you want to do? It's in us all. It's in us all very young. Don't hit me. It hurt me. But the gospel's bigger than your natural reaction. And it says when they hurt you, pull them closer. 
Don't push him away. Pull him closer. Elijah said, give me your son you think I've killed. And where did he take him? Up to his personal space, his upper room. See, we want to witness to the lost at a comfortable distance. We'd like to go do our little homeless outreach or street ministry or prison ministry or missions trip over there and then come back to our safe little world. But the gospel requires us to bring the hurting into our world. Did Jesus stand at a distance and say, all who will leave where they're at and come to me will be saved? Or did he depart the highest heavens and come even to the earth as a servant to reach the lost? Do you see how he included you in his life? Elijah didn't just put him in his room. He laid him on his bed. Could there be any more violation of your personal space than to give somebody your bed. How many of you, when you have guests, don't you raise your hands, think about this one. When you have a guest, you say, I am so glad you're here. There's a trundle bed in the garage. I'm so glad you're here. There's a fold-out couch over there. What does it say if you love somebody enough to say, I'm so glad you're here. I prepared the master bedroom for, for you, and you sleep on the trundle bed. Now let's imagine they're not a relative. They're not older than you. Let's imagine that it's a lost person who is more physically fit than you. Are you hearing how the gospel requires you to give your best? We want to give away the old junkie car. It never occurred to us to keep it for another year and give the nicer car away, did it? How are people going to know that we're different? To win the lost, we must be willing not only to endure harsh treatment, but also to take the spiritually dead into our personal lives. Let them get a close view of our lives. We want people to hear what we preach, but not how we live. Listen to where this goes. Then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die. What does Elijah do? He takes the complaint she made to him, to his God. You know what that means? That means Elijah was no different than us. He didn't understand why he died either. He was just as dumbstruck by it. It hurt him just as much. This is a second trait of a Christian. When you're hurt, do you push people away or pull them closer? And when you're hurt, do you go tell people you're hurt or do you go tell the Lord? See, you can take it to the throne or you can take it to the phone. When you take it to the phone, your problems multiply. Long time after God's fixed it, your friends will remember it and remind you of it. But if you take it to the throne, the living God might fix it right there. Elijah went to the throne of God when he had a problem. He's been insulted. He's probably in a little bit of shock because apparently the Lord didn't give him advance notice. But he takes it to the Lord. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, oh Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried, Lord, oh Lord, my God, let this boy's life Return to him. If you want to see the spiritually dead come to life, 
There's only one way you can do it. You have to let them get close to you. And you have to rub shoulders with them so that the life that was put on deposit in you gets on them. There is no such thing as loving someone from a great distance. It's not possible because they can't see what you do and how you live. But Elijah stretches out on this boy. You remember that Eutychus fell out of a window? You know what Paul did when he fell out of a window? Laid him on the ground. And he laid on him. What a strange thing. Can you imagine if that happened in a church service today? What people would say. But could there be any better picture? Lord, let the eyes you've given me be his eyes. Let the nose and mouth you've given me be like his. Lord God, what you've done for me, I'm asking that you would do for him. Lord, let the life you've given to me spread into them. Is this not the very spirit of Christ? Is it not the very heart of Christ that the kingdom his father had given him, he wanted you to have? How did he give it to you? He came and tabernacled among us. He came and walked among us. All saints, God is dimming the light so that you can go be the light of the world, so that they can see what you have and benefit from the light shining from your life and they can find out how to get it too. Don't be surprised that God wants you in dark places. You were born for this. If we want to see the spiritually dead raised, we must be willing to be uncomfortably close to them. And this process of rubbing shoulders with them or stretching out on them, so to speak, will allow the power of God and the life that's in you to rub off on them. If you don't give up after the first encounter. How many times did Elijah have to do this? I bet the first time felt absurd. I bet the second time was even more assaulting. But in the third time, the boy's life begins to return to him. I don't know how long it's going to take for you to witness to your alcoholic aunt. I don't know how many thanksgivings you're going to have to endure where they mock your faith and insult you. I just know that we're built in a way that we can take as much as they have to give. I know it. Because the power of an indestructible life is put inside of you. We're anvils that wear out hammers because the Spirit of God is inside of us. And I bet they crack before you do. Church, it's time for us to grab ourselves by the spiritual boots and go back to work. Here's verse 22. The Lord heard Elijah's cry. And the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. If the boy lived and died and lived again, you could say that the boy was born again. You want to see somebody born again? It involves pulling them close rather than pushing them far. It involves having your face slapped so that they can see the sincerity of your faith. It involves taking them close into your space so that your life can rub off on them. Verse 33, 23, Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. 
All the miracle provision that she had seen had not been enough to convince her. But the power of one life changed. It does the trick. And here's how you know. Verse 24. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. She didn't know when he multiplied her provision. She didn't know when she was financially taken care of. She knew when she saw somebody who was dead come back to life. She insulted the man and he pulled her closer. She accused the man and he blessed her for her cursing him. Church, this is evangelism. I was told by a dear friend one time, brother, we could go to that country and we could do a proper crusade. There could be 20,000 people. The brother meant so well by it, and he's called to that kind of thing. He's not throwing a stone at him. He, He preaches like a giant. I mean, we could all learn from it. but I was happier going to a village of 78 people and living with them and eating with them and going from house to house because I believe in a deed-based evangelism. And I would rather see those 78 genuinely on fire for God than 20,000 that cheer, but go home and live like they've always lived, just learning to believe a new thing. I believe it's time to go back to the fundamentals. I believe God is raising up with us. Matthew, you can come up here. A group of people who will live out their faith in a way that causes life from death. I want to give you six things that I picked up from this story. God will use those of us who are willing to endure the drought, realizing it is only an opportunity for God to show himself for the lost. Next time people are biting their nails and quaking in fear, laugh and say, this is our highest opportunity. The second one, he will use those of us who refuse to question his reasoning, but trust his wisdom. We don't need to know why the brook dried up. That doesn't change our view of God or make us think that his character's changed. Lord, I don't know why you want me to, but I'm willing to do exactly what you've said. Can you commit to that, church? Third one, he will use those of us who are willing to go to those outside of our normal circle. If I were God, I would have said it was a more efficient use of Elijah's time to send him to Israel, but he didn't. He sent him to foreigners. Does God have the right to send you outside of your comfort zone for a single life, he does. And he values your life enough to do it. He will use those of us who do not quit or get offended when our faces are slapped, whether figuratively or in reality. He will use those of us who are willing to bring the lost into our personal spaces, that they may see us as we really are. He will use those of us who are willing to rub shoulders with the lost until the life we have is in them. Church, he's calling you to this, every one of you. In closing, I'd like to remind you, Jesus sent out 72 people in Luke 10. 
72. He didn't call them believers. He called them workers. That's how he referred to it. Sent out 72 workers. He didn't tell them what to believe and never told them what to preach. You won't find those words in Luke 10. He tells them what to do. When they returned after doing what he told them to do, Jesus rejoiced and said, Thank you, Father, for you have revealed yourself to them. In their actions, Jesus could see they received revelation from heaven. Then in Luke 10, 25, Jesus tells his most famous parable, parable of a good Samaritan. Friends, we either care more about what happens to them or we care more about what happens to us. We either deny Christ or we learn to deny ourselves. I say you are born for this time. I say that you've been specially prepared for it. And now that you've been cured, the Lord is giving you something to carry and a direction to walk. Can I tell you what Jesus said? Get up, stand to your feet. 